Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and excited to cross the Atlantic Ocean again, landing in Santa Fe, New Mexico today to catch up with Mr. Terrence Burns. Welcome to the podcast, Terrence. Thank you very much, Marcus. Nice to be here with you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation. We, we had a great chat. It was only a couple of months back now, I think, when we first spoke. And uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing these stories and this time recording them and capturing all that wisdom which you were sharing at that time. So, uh, But before we get there, let me just sort of do the usual quick intro for, for anyone who might not know you. Terence has been around this industry for many decades, and we'll be discovering plenty of that here while we're talking. But you are really a specialist in the Olympic Games sponsorship space, strategies, consulting, and of course, the Olympic and World Cup bidding processes. So we're really going to have a good look at that. And, and there's some great stories and, and sharing I know uh, we'll hear from you. So, And you also published author. So um, well, you know, maybe you can share a bit on that as well, what exactly you published there. So how we always get started in the, in the podcast is really at the really beginning. And in your case, that was an interesting start as well, I guess, because you were working for Delta Airlines. So let's take ourselves back there and, uh, and then we unravel the stories right from there. No worries at all. You're right. I did start with Delta Airlines uh, right out of undergraduate school. I went to Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, I wanted to be a dentist, Marcus, for oh, some right. <laughs> For some reason, unbeknownst to me and everybody else, I I I, uh, I lacked the two skills that one needed to be a dentist, which was proficiency in uh, organic chemistry, I guess, and math. And so right. uh, in, in my junior year uh, with a biology minor, they decided I should go to business school. So I went to, uh, went to the business school and uh, being 22 years old, the most important thing in my life was to fly for free around the world. And uh, okay. so I got a job with Delta. Uh, wow. I didn't realize that you had to start at the bottom at Delta. I showed up at work with my suit on, the uh -huh. only suit I owned, right. and uh, some nice nice shoes. And uh, I was told to pick up a mop and start mopping. So I was a, a janitor for two years cleaning toilets uh, on midnight shift, second shift, day shift, et cetera. Wow. So that's a, so, so well, what, a lot. What, what, yeah, when, when, you, when they hired you, well, you must have been hired for a particular job. I mean, you don't just randomly go there, I guess. So what, what was, <laughs> what was well, the job Delta, description? It wasn't cleaning toilets, I'm assuming. No, no. In Delta in those days, I, they promoted only from within. Everybody started at the bottom. But I – I was hired for a company, or excuse me, a position called Airport Passenger Assistant, which was a job they created to get more college graduates into the company because, okay. honestly, a lot of people didn't want to be janitors. And uh, no, no doubt, uh, right before I joined, they told me, oh, Terrence, uh, we filled that position from within. We still would love for you to be a member of the Delta family. So uh, oh. show up at the jet base at 6.42 a.m. on January the 12th, 1981. Start your illustrious career. I, uh, I'm actually starting my second book, and I, I'm writing about that experience right now. Okay, cool. And I, I vividly remember walking through the, the bowels of the giant maintenance facility in, in Atlanta with my little suit on uh, with a gentleman who was in torn, stinky, uh, ragged rain gear heading to uh, a room where I would spend the next two years as a maintenance utility employee. So I, I was just happy to have a job, Marcus, honestly, right. in those days. Uh, right. You know, it was it was pretty grim in the U.S. in terms of getting a job. And right. my, my dream was to work for Delta. So uh, 
Right. You know, you don't know what you don't know. So I was happy, and uh, I learned I learned probably more in those two years than I have anywhere else uh, wow. about humility and working hard. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I, I can imagine. I can imagine. Amazing. Oh, that, that's an interesting <laughs> start. Yeah. Now, obviously, you then you spent 15 years there. So somehow that early yeah. experience didn't deter you. Uh, so tell us a bit more than how you graduate through the ranks, um, which lets us then, you know, do the Olympics uh, down the line here. Yeah. Well, I'll try not to bore you. It's 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 not too interesting, but it's a series of jobs. Uh, you, you You bet on jobs within Delta. And I I real for my next job after being a janitor, I was a tool room supply attendant for another right. six years, wow. and that's working a midnight shift, checking out tools to mechanics in the big hangar. Mm. So I spent about two years of that playing guitar at night, and then I realized that no one at Delta Airlines could care less that I was there, and that nothing would happen unless I did something myself. So I went back to graduate school, got my MBA at night. Mm. Uh, and uh, somehow made the leap from tool room to uh, a purchasing agent in the GO, which was the general offices. So I went from, you know, eight years as a blue collar person hitting uh, uh, the clock, literally the clock with a yep. card every day yeah, to yeah, yeah. much morning. I, I had to go buy some suits and ties. I'd never written a memo. I'd never been in a business meeting. Uh, and I was suddenly in the geo and I was a buyer. I was buying things like uh, mainframe software, which I knew nothing about. I was buying airplane seats, uh, transportation, et cetera. But I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to, um, my, my, my MBA is in international business and affairs. And I wanted to be in something called international marketing at Delta, mm -hmm. which was virtually impossible to get into. And I, just pestered and badgered the hell out of everybody there. I was finally told you can't get into international marketing until unless you are a domestic marketing uh, sales rep. Mm -hmm. And that's impossible to get into in Atlanta. Atlanta was our the hub of Delta. Right. You had to have many years to be in Atlanta marketing. You had to go like to Boise, Idaho or, or somewhere far away for, and toil away in the hinterlands and maybe get back. So I decided I wasn't going to do that. I was going to get into Atlanta marketing. And, and somehow I got a, an interview and somehow I got the job. And I remember vividly in the interview, they said, why do you want to be a marketing rep? I said, I really don't. I just want this job to get to the international marketing job. Right. And they all were kind of put off by that. But somehow I got it, Marcus. Then uh, literally one year later, got into international marketing and sales at Delta uh, and so that's 15 years <laughs> that's, punched that's a, into a few moments. But, but yeah. so what, the, what I, did, the, I, I, sorry, I, I did get to go to Europe. I, I did get to go to Europe and work on the Delta acquisition team. We bought Pan Am's European route structure in 91. So I went as part of the marketing team. I was based in Frankfurt. And my job was to go around to all of the Pan Am sales and marketing offices in Europe. And basically within a few days, ascertain whether we were going to keep the people there or not that's you out you talked about being an author that's the book i wrote about that okay. that delta experience right, excellent. came back they then they sent me to russia in 1992 right after the fall of the soviet union that in itself is is a book um okay. then i came back Russia and i got a job as somehow i got this job as the administrative assistant of the senior vice president of marketing, which apparently everybody in the marketing division wanted that job. I had no idea what it was. 
Uh, it's a one-year stint where they pair uh, a young person with a senior executive. I, I did that probably for about nine months, and then we decided to be, uh, sponsor the Olympic Games. And uh, they came to me and said, do you want to manage that? And I said, you know, that's probably a lot more interesting than picking up the dry cleaning for the senior executive. So, yeah, I'll take that job. And uh, <laughs> there we go. Bob's your uncle. Well, I love it. Well, so that gets us now into more of the, the Olympic world, which obviously we're going to spend pretty much the rest of the conversation on here. And so, you know, just describe a little bit exactly what you were doing for Delta. And this is obviously the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. Um, what were sure. you doing there in-house uh, and that how that then, of course, led to, I guess, the next role there was Meridian? Mm -hmm. Well, I was given the, the, the role in 93, late 93, um, to manage Delta sponsorship of the Games. It was, a, it was a tenuous time for airlines everywhere, especially American ones. Uh, after the first Gulf War, uh, Delta was losing money. It never lost money in its 60-year history. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, the official airline of... Uh, an event in a city that we have 90% of the market share. Um, and I knew nothing about sports marketing, let alone Olympic marketing. But I, I, did, uh, I did go out and hire uh, consultants to help me, uh, people like Rob Brasmark, uh, people like Jan Katzoff, who is now working with me a little bit in uh, my current role. And we had a great team within Delta to support me, and I, I think I learned – Uh, one of the success in corporate in, in the corporate world is managing up. And I had, <laughs> I had great bosses, a lady named Judy Jordan was the best boss I ever had. Of course, the EVP of marketing was Bob Coggin and the chairman and president and CEO of Delta at that time was a guy named Ron Allen. Um, it, it became a real focus for the company. And I had huge support, as I said, from above, which made it work. Um, so long story short, um, Because we didn't have a lot of cash, uh, the deal was a $30 million deal, roughly 10 of that was cash, and the rest was VIK. Necessity is the mother of invention. So I, I learned something that I still tell new sponsors. Uh, the Olympic sponsorship itself should not be viewed as a standalone marketing program. If you can't tie it to the existing uh, objectives right. and um, goals of the company, you're kind of wasting your time. So hmm. I quickly uh, learned that I had to have a, I had to have a revenue component. I had to have a brand component. And back in those days, it was kind of brown, groundbreaking. We had an employee strategy right. because in service brands like airlines or banks or pick any other service brand, your employees that meet and deal with the customers are really the brand ambassadors. Yeah, it's right. not the, it's not the advertising. It's not the tagline. It's the experience you have with that gate agent or that yeah. flight attendant or the check-in agent that makes or breaks the brand. So Absolutely. we focused – if I could do it again, I would probably double or treble my efforts on the employees. It was wildly popular inside of the company. We needed a, a feel-good story hmm. in those days. And, Marcus, we were, we were able to actually measure it because I had a very aggressive board that I had to meet with on a monthly basis. Right. I'm sure – Anyone who's listening to this in the corporate world who, who's a sponsorship person knows how difficult that is. Uh, for Delta, it was a lot of money yeah. uh, in those days. And so I had – I remember we had a guy named Ed Arts who was the chairman of P&G on our board who just did not understand <laughs> – he didn't understand airline pricing. He thought it should be everyday low pricing like selling peas or strawberries or 
or whatever. And um, he definitely didn't uh, understand what we were trying to do with the Olympics. So he was he was a nemesis in many ways, but because of his because of that, he he made us better. He made us uh, focus really on what we could achieve. So the, the long story short of how that leap happened, uh, we measured it, and we were able to demonstrably show what we achieved out of that sponsorship. And the IOC was intrigued with that. So when uh, we moved, when I moved over to Meridian, which I'll tell you about in a moment, mm-hmm. that was really part and parcel of it. Um, they felt that we, interestingly enough, were one of the first sponsors that they had heard of or dealt with that actually measured the efficacy of their investment. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting. And, and I mean, before we move on from from your airline experience, uh, I had an airline experience too. I, I actually had a really short thing with uh, American Airlines during uh, my summer internship when I was doing my MBA. Uh, and this was related yeah. to the 1994 Football World Cup, where they were the the official airline, right? And so uh, I, I said, you know, nowhere near your experience, but but uh, you know, I saw a bit from from an airline perspective, and and uh, and similar there, you know, there was a there's a lot of learning there um, on on every level. So yeah, it's interesting. Now, if I remember last time you were saying you 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 were setting really clear KPIs, right? I think it was around employees mm-hmm. and transaction, customer focus, etc. Um, yeah, maybe mm-hmm. just share that a little bit, and then, and then we move into, of course, uh, you know how that I guess role there landed you in the Meridian. Then, absolutely. Uh, well, as I said, we had a, you know, it was it, thirty years ago, almost. Uh, it was in a, it was the really early days of what would you would call professional sponsorship mm-hmm. practices. Now, right. I mean, today there are people within brands, uh, you know, within. Uh, sponsorship uh, sections of brands, departments of brands who are really, really adept and professional at what they do. Back in those days, that just wasn't the case. Um, so we we had to quickly show our board uh, and our stakeholders that this wasn't really about logo placement because there is no, there are no logos, as you know, in an Olympic yep. venue. <laughs> you get no media. You have to buy that. So everything is an add-on. You know, a cover. When I sell, and we'll talk about this, but selling an Olympic sponsorship, you really have to get the buyer to understand. You're, it's a cover charge right. to get into the bar. You get to the bar. You know, that, yes. that's it. Yeah. Yeah. If you want, if you want a beer, you got to buy it. If you want a hamburger, you got to buy it. If mm-hmm. you want to dance with somebody, you got to buy it. So, right. the, you know. It, to get uh, Delta's senior officers and board to understand that was a, was a bit of a trick, but we did. Mm-hmm. So uh, my my KPIs were quite simple. I had to generate $30 million, which seems very small today, but it wasn't in those days. Mm-hmm. $30 million in incremental revenue okay. that I had to prove and measure to pay for the rights fees. Yep. Uh, I had to hit a 65, I think, percent level of awareness amongst our premium flyers. Mm-hmm. In those days, our premium frequent flyers that we were the official airline of the 1996 games. And right. mind you, we had to split that category with United. United Airlines was oh, okay. the official airline of the USOC, and they wouldn't give that up. So mm-hmm. not only did I I have a hill to climb with with uh, with sponsorship, I had to share the category, and then the third one, which was a little more a little bit more mystical, we had some internal um, metrics around uh, pride in the company, motivation, et cetera. But what we were able to do was to go to every single uh, 
business vertical within Delta, where there was maintenance in flight, uh, geo accounting, et cetera. And I had the resources, i.e. tickets, rooms, apparel, merchandise. And I, I let every group define their own um, performance uh, okay. mechanisms with the company. So, for example, for in-flight, it was quite, it was quite easy. We, we created a program where we let customers nominate flight attendants for their performance and their attitudes, et cetera. Right. Uh, places, like, places like tech ops, uh, we let them design programs around everything from attendance to you know not breaking things, uh, et cetera. And we let our employees, a, a, as, as a sponsor and as part of the torch relay, we had 100 slots, as I recall. Right, okay. And we, uh, we took a fair amount of those slots and let them be employee nominated. So you could nominate a fellow employee based on whether they were a great mechanic or were they were just a great person. Right, right. Um, or what. And that was just so wonderful to see that manifest in the pride of these people. Hmm. Um, and a quick aside, I did get to run with the, the torch. And honestly, after two and a half years of being a sponsor and dealing with ACOG, which was the uh, organizing committee, I think everybody out there who's a sponsor understands the, the difficulties sometimes of dealing with the Olympic uh, parties. I was kind of frustrated. Um, and I had already made the decision to leave and join Meridian, which we can get to in a moment. Yeah. And I was having second thoughts, Marcus. I was really uh, 15 years is a lot of time to put into a career yeah. and to walk away from it, which was something which, even though it wasn't risky, it was a startup, et cetera. But on the final day, the day uh, of opening ceremonies, I ran with the Olympic torch early in the morning in a, um, how can I say, a disadvantaged neighborhood in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I was on a I was on a a bus with a bunch of people who were also running with a torch, and all of these were extraordinary people, and they were telling their stories about how they were chosen to run with the Olympic torch, the Olympic flame. And then it got to me, and I didn't have a great story other than I was just representing a sponsor who spent a lot of money. So I felt a little <laughs> I felt a little embarrassed about it. But I got out, and they they set you out somewhere, and suddenly I'm surrounded by all these people. Um. All of them were mesmerized by the, the torch I was holding in my hand and the, and the games coming to town. And I realized I was as close as any of these people were ever going to get to the Olympic Games. Hmm. And their enthusiasm and optimism and wonder, uh, just I, I'm thinking about it right now and I have goosebumps. It, it changed me hmm. right there. Right. And I decided I did make the right decision. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And it was the best decision I ever made. Well, love it. Great. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful summary there. So let's talk Meridian here. Um, there were the IOC marketing agency, but like explain it a bit better because again, this is even goes this goes way back here. I do recall it vaguely uh, hearing and knowing a bit about the agency, but I don't know a whole lot. So tell us a bit more how it you know what was their role, how they got it, and then of course what were you doing for them? Of course. Well, as you know, ISL. Uh, at the time, was the largest sports marketing right. issue in the world. They had both the IOC and the FIFA sponsorship remit. They were a sales organization, and they were effective sales organization, but there was some frustration within the IOC, certainly uh, with uh, Dick Pound, who was the head of the marketing commission at the time, and Michael Payne, who was the director of marketing. 
that that's what they were. Um, I'm not sure if they came to that on their own or if uh, the two principals of Meridian, which was Chris Welton mm-hmm. and a guy named Laurent Charapin. Laurent was uh, the guy who, who, who went out on behalf of ISL and put the program together with the NOCs. Chris happened to be um, the guy at the Atlantic Games within ACOG uh, who ran, lack of a better word, sponsorship, sales, and servicing. He was the guy you'd go to when you really needed something done. He was the guy you go to for somebody who made sense, who understood what you were trying to do as a sponsor. Lovely guy, the smartest person I've ever met. So they got together, Marcus, and decided, you know what? We can do this. We can do this better and cheaper mm. uh, than ISL. And they went. It was in Australia, and I think uh, one of the sessions before the Atlanta Games, they knocked on Dick Pound's uh, hotel door and said, "We've got a proposition for you. We can we can put a company together and do this better and cheaper and make it a marketing focused rather than a sales focused organization." Um, Dick said, well, we're already, I think, if, uh, I, I don't think I'm misstating this. Dick said, we, we've already reached at least a red line agreement with ISL to renew them. So whatever you got to say, say it fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, long story short, um, they made a proposal to the to the IOC. The IOC Foundation would own 25% of Meridian. Meridian would own 70%. The individuals would own 75% right. of it. So it was the premise there was, we can bring in world-class marketing people and pay them market rates. Hmm. You can't do that within the IOC structure back in those days at that time. Right, right. Uh, your sponsors are clamoring and crying for a more professional and astute marketing hmm. program from the IOC. We can do it. So long story short, uh, Chris called me. I met with him, met with Michael. I had you know, I had to meet with Dick. And um, they said, we want you on board. You're going to run. The marketing side, not the deal side. Um, And I said yes. This decision was made probably in the spring of 96. um, And Delta tried hard to to get me to stay. And uh, I had made up my mind. So that's how it happened. That's how I joined. And um, Meridian kept that that remit for two cycles, from 96 to 2004. I... I got the itch to go out on my own uh, after Sydney. So I left in early uh, 2001. And uh, in many ways, it was the best job I've ever had. Uh, My job started off just on the servicing and marketing side. And I was able to, took me a year and a half, one year and a half to convince the the IOC that they were a brand. I remember walking into Lausanne on my very first trip there, which would have been maybe a week or two after the games ended in Atlanta, mm. met Michael in the in one of the EB rooms there. I said, well, you know, Michael, I've, I've never been a consultant in my life. I'm not sure where to start. So may I see your marketing plan? And Michael looked at me and he said, uh, you don't understand. Uh, we don't have one. That's why you're here. You need to write a marketing plan. Okay. And I said, well, okay, fine. Well, let's start with the brand. And uh, he kind of looked at me and I said, you're a brand. We need to understand what that brand is, position that brand. Michael got it. Dick, to a lesser degree, got it. He's, he's a brilliant tax attorney from Canada. So it took a year and a half uh, to convince the executive board that the IOC or the Olympics, what I should say, were a brand. Mm-hmm. And they finally, they finally allowed uh, 
me through uh, a company called Edgar Dunn, who was put on loan to us by Visa to conduct a global brand audit for the very first time to position the Olympic brand uh, as a professional. You know, I, I'm dealing with CMOs of 11, 12 of the biggest companies in the world, and I know how they work. I know how Delta worked, uh, and they expected it. So the, the truth is there were a lot of, lot of fathers to that success, and the, the top partner group in general pushed me and helped me push the IOC to get this done. And after a year, we came back. We had marketing data. We had real-time uh, information on how consumers felt about all aspects of the Olympics. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't matter if you were a 35-year-old female in Tokyo or a 50-year-old man in Moscow. We were able to prove a lot of very interesting things that people surmised and kind of knew, but to have it proved empirically was pretty powerful. Uh, and one of the takeaways from that that I still use to this day, which sometimes is taken out of context, but it's true. When I tell people the Olympics really aren't about sport, the sport is the path. It's the vehicle that takes us to these universal values, right. love by every culture in the world. Uh, and it's extraordinary how, how well that works. And maybe sport is the only vehicle that can do that. But we learned in that research, and the and the ASI has kept up doing that research for twenty years. You know, they do they do brand track research, et cetera. But and they do a little bit of the, um, I guess, the qualitative focus groups that we did in those days. But I would I'd probably double or treble those efforts as well. That's where you really learn things in focus groups as opposed to quantitative questionnaires. Mm. But we 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 talked to people, many people who said, you know, I'm not a sports person. I don't really even follow sports, but I love the Olympic Games. Mm. So, you know, having that insight and then being able to go back to a brand like, and I'll, I'll, I'll use McDonald's here, not in a pejorative way. They're no longer a sponsor of the Olympics. Right. But in those days, um, it was fairly inevitable that one of the print campaigns that they would submit uh, to us for approval, and we had to approve everything that right. sponsors did, and the IOC still does. They had, uh, I remember one in particular, Five cheeseburgers shaped like the Olympic rings. <laughs> right, okay. Um, and, okay, well, you, you know, we kind of giggle and laugh, but to them it was important. That yeah. was their product. They didn't see any incongruence with that in the Olympic yeah. brand. But I was able to go to Oak Brook, Illinois, and sit down with, you know, all of their people, their, their senior marketing people, CMOs, et cetera, and show them the Olympic data and say, this is why this doesn't work anymore. And so instead of it being a emotional conversation, which used to go along the lines, I've paid $40 million, I should be able to do what I want. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can't believe you're telling me no. It went from that conversation to, oh, I see, this is what consumers think. Mm -hmm. I was, we were able to very clearly show them how and why consumers love the Olympics, but very importantly, under what auspices they would support Olympic sponsors. Right. So if it was about logo slapping, no. It, again, this seems like an obvious point, but we proved empirically that consumers told us, if you want us to support these sponsors, they have to tell us a story. Right. They have to tell us why they're a sponsor, why the Olympics are important to them, and then more importantly, they have to use these 
attributes, and we had 40 attributes that we boiled down to about 15 into two different levels. They have to use these particular words that we're using to describe the Olympic brand. So it got really, really specific, very, very specific, very fast. And as a marketer, you know, they were used to dealing. It was nice for me to be on the IOC side to go talk to marketing people because I was one of them. Um, so that was that role at the IOC for me was my most the one I'm most proud of and the one I enjoyed the most was the brand work. And we really did kick off and start their first ever brand uh, campaign, which was Celebrate Humanity. We got Robin Williams or TBWA Shite Day got Robin Williams to do the, the voiceover for free because okay. um, he did he did do commercials. Once he heard about the Olympic brand and, and was shown how it works and what it means, he said, I'm in. So, yeah, right. that that part of it was uh, was wonderful. But I realized quickly, Marcus, that the IOC moves quite slowly and I I did it right. and I don't. I was young and I wanted to I wanted to do other things and I realized it was going to take a long time to convince the IOC at that time about brand management. Brand management was not just a campaign. Brand management to me all these years later, brand management actually starts with the bid city selection process. The cities and the nations that you choose should actually reflect the values that you're right. trying to uh, express. So anyway, I I uh, learned all I could learn loved every moment of it, decided at whatever age I was when I left, I think 42, it's now or never. So right. now the, the rest of the company was actually involved in the selling, right? So they, you were the more, more on the marketing side, but the rest of the team was selling the sponsorship packages just to clarify that. Of course. Yeah. yeah. The, okay. We had two main offices, one's in Atlanta, one's in Lausanne. The one right. in Lausanne okay. was run by Laurent. Right. And they were the aggregator of the NOC rights and the one in Atlanta that I worked in with Chris Welton. We were the sales and servicing arm. Got it. So, and sales in, in the IOC really means renewals with the occasional sale of a, of a new product sure. category because of the way the co categories are described. And, and um, you, try to, you try to keep as many categories open as you can for the organizing committee who has to raise a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the sales side we did in Atlanta and servicing. And eventually the branding and communications. And you mentioned earlier throughout, I think, sort of in passing 40 million or something. I mean, what was the, the numbers there at that time, right? So if you're thinking 2000 Sydney Olympics here, I guess, was one of the yeah. bigger ones you were involved in. Uh, you know, just can you share what was the rough rough dollar numbers at of that course. time? Of course. Atlanta was the first organizing committee to charge its tier one partners the exact same rate as top sponsors. It was okay. – Unheard of. It was, you know, nobody thought they could do it. It was crazy. And that number was $45 million per quad. Mm -hmm. uh, as we were renewing for the next quad, uh, that price was going to go up roughly to 55, 50 to 55, depending on, you know, the sponsor, so about a 10% right. plus. Uh, What's interesting about that is the, the brand program that I just described to you, we did that. We, we kicked it off in Nagano. That's where we began our one-on-one -on -one interviews with us. We talked to 5,500 people around the world quantitatively. We talked to 250 stakeholders within the Olympic movement, which everybody from IOC members down to athletes to sponsors to broadcasters to you know the great Olympic circus. Mm -hmm. And we talked to uh, competitive brands like Nike, uh, Disney, et cetera, to try to understand, you know, what was going on. And we did 20, 20 focus groups around the world, including places like 
Senegal, uh, Russia, uh, China, places that the IOC had never conducted research. Right. Um, we we delivered all of that on the on the day that Mark Hodler uh, let the world know that Salt Lake City uh, did some nefarious things with IOC members and won the games uh, and claimed that they 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 cheated. Right. And uh, I had I had to deliver the brand findings that next day okay. in Montreux, Switzerland, to all of the sponsors. They gave us a standing ovation, which had never happened, and it was terribly named thing the sag meeting sponsor advisory group was a terrible name it's been changed since (laughs) but at the SAG meeting we got a standing ovation from top partners which was just incredibly unusual usually it was just a bitch fest from start to finish (laughs) um and i understand why i understand why but it 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 was it was deflating most of the time now they they gave us a standing ovation they said this is great however after the relevations of yesterday about Salt Lake City, we don't believe it anymore. Right, right, right. And believe it, believe it or not, we went out and did a six-month version of the twelve-month version we just finished. Mm-hmm. And what did we find out? We found out that the Olympic brand was even stronger. We found out that consumers were appalled at what happened, but they held the IOC and members of the IOC responsible, not the brand. Okay. In fact, they said we're going to stand by companies that support this brand in spite of all of this bad news. So I will tell you more than a few of the IOC sponsors tried to, uh, tried to put the screws to us and, and renew at a lower rate. And once we went back with the new data, we got a 10% premium across the board minimum for all of those renewals. Right, right. Yeah. That, that's a powerful message. You know, that's, that, but that, yeah. that's, that's the power of branding. That's mm. the power of understanding the consumer. That's the power of understanding how that consumer links to what it is you're selling. Absolutely. We would not have been able to do that with a classic old school, 99% of the world loves the Olympics, 99% of those people know what their rings are. That That's basically what they were selling until yeah. we until we did this this research. Uh, yeah, yeah. Great story, great story. Now let, let's move on a little bit here. Um, then, you know, from, from Meridian, I guess you had a really short sting there with uh, NASCAR. Uh, working with George yeah. Pine, I believe, uh, but uh, that was quite short. And then, obviously, uh, you know, you started Helios uh, partnership there. So, uh, just go quickly, jump there, and then uh, let's talk about Helios. I'm happy to. Actually, there was a step between uh, the IOC and NASCAR. I, I created right. a company called Helic. I, you know, I love I love all things Greek, so I created a company called Helicon okay. with my friend and former uh, vendor, a guy named George Herthler who's quite famous in the Olympic movement for his writings about de Coubertin. And he's a true believer and he's taught me a lot more than I, uh, more than virtually everything I know about the, the emotional construct of the games around uh, de Coubertin's writings and his philosophy. So we started Helicon immediately. We got Beijing 2008 as a sponsor. It right. won immediately. We got bank. We got Vancouver as a sponsor. It won nine uh, 11 hit and our, our, fledgling little business like everybody's that was dependent on incremental marketing revenue uh, stalled. Hmm. So uh, it was early to at the end of 2002 where, you know, we had a, a smattering of small clients, but I could see that uh, we were not going to recover and our business wasn't going to recover for quite a while after nine 11. And it's really hard for anybody to understand now who wasn't in our business at that time, uh, how devastating that was to just marketing companies. Right. So um, 
uh, I, through a headhunter, I, I, I got a request um, to go down to NASCAR and talk to them. It was a consumer communications position. I'm not a comms guy, although I, the work that I do is the foundation of what comms people do. Mm-hmm. I'm not, let's just say this. I'm not a media guy, but I am a communications guy. Right. So anyway, I got the job. Uh, they wanted to make NASCAR much more mainstream in those days. Um, they wanted to uh, get NASCAR drivers on the Today Show and on the front of People magazine in those days. Right, right. And um, I liked the people a lot. They were the smartest people probably I've ever worked with. I just wasn't entranced, enhanced with the uh, uh, the brand itself, the product. The product. Mm. So, yeah, uh, but they were great people. I was there about a year maximum. Realized I missed the Olympics, and I got a call, believe it or not, from a guy, uh, an octagon guy in Beijing uh, through Frank Craighill. Uh, and uh, they needed some help for the Moscow 20 of Olympic bid. Uh, no one in octagon knew anything about bidding. They called me. Uh, it, was, it was a great opportunity to get back into the Olympics, uh, and I did it. Now, that was probably the worst bid I've ever worked on in my life, but it was character building. <laughs> and, uh, the, and the Russians, God bless them. Uh, you know, I'd spent a lot of time in Russia uh, before with Delta. Uh, the Russians kindly said, "You, you know, you worked your ass off on this bid, uh, so we're going to give you Sochi," which okay. everybody in my business laughed. You, you got to be, you're going to go from from Moscow, which was for a lot of reasons not a good bid, to this thing called Sochi. Uh, and so I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. It's a blank piece of paper. They, they do whatever I want. And, uh, we put a team together. And so that's that. So, um, and that was under Helios already at that time or, or that was, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I started Helios in 2003 by myself. Mm-hmm. Then I brought in Frank Craig Hill, who as you may or may not know, is one of the, uh, one of the founders of our industry, he had managed international, which was a more tennis yeah, yeah, yeah. oriented. Okay. Went, he, then he was a chairman at Octagon and, and Frank was a very, is a very knowledgeable dear man. And, uh, we just kind of hit it off and he was probably my age at those time, at that time, early sixties, I was early forties we both had what each other needed. Uh, I was young and aggressive and unboundless energy and freshly out of the IOC and, he was at the other end of what he was doing, but still wanted to work and stay in the game. Mm-hmm. So Frank, I started it, brought him in in 03. Uh, it was really around bidding uh, more than anything else. Uh, then we got a uh, we got a call from Samsung in 05 that they wanted us to be in an RFP to help renew their top deal. By that time, Chris Welton had left Meridian. They had sold Meridian back to the International Olympic Committee in, in 2004. They took they took um, IOC marketing back in house. By the way, I, right. I did interview for for Michael's job. It was that's probably the only job I ever interviewed for that I really wanted that I didn't get. <laughs> uh, and Timo Timo Lume got it, and, and Timo uh, for a thousand reasons, which was a much better fit for that job, and has done an incredible job at the IOC. Um, so, um, yeah, so Welton, I called Chris, who was semi-retired. I said, Chris, uh, Samsung invited us in this RFP. Uh, I want to I make my team a little stronger than just me and Frank, and we're competing against everybody. Uh, and 
how would you like to just do this on a project basis? And he said, sure, I'll, I'll do it. So we got it. We got the business. Hmm. Um, much to the chagrin of a lot of people in our industry. And um, so then Welton joined Helios. So my, my kind of adversary slash friend slash partner at ACOG when I was at Delta then my boss at Meridian, and suddenly now he he's my uh, my Good partner point. at, at oh, excellent. It, right. So that's how that happened, and and we opened up an office in uh, in Beijing, and we found out that we were competing against uh, a gentleman named Chris Renner, also former ISL. In mm-hmm. uh, a lot of it, Chris had moved there. He 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 had bravely taken the plunge and moved his family to Beijing to, t- to try to take advantage of the opportunities around Beijing 2008. Yeah. He had a small agency there, and uh, so we decided to join forces probably in oh probably six maybe two thousand six. So we we joined forces with his company Prescient. That brand went away. Correct. He correct. became part of Helios. Right. And yeah, uh, that's that. Interesting. Yeah. So Helios. That's you know, Helios, Helios was around started, for right. almost ten years. Yeah. yeah. Now, in, in those 10 years, obviously, you, again, you, you were involved in a lot of bidding uh, uh, processes, right? I remember last time you mentioned five Olympic Games, I think, two World Cups uh, from Beijing, Vancouver, Pyongyang, Sochi, LA. Um, I can't remember the World Cup once. Uh, you know, let, let, let's, let's talk about that, right? Let's, let's uh, get into sure. what exactly it is you guys were doing for bidding committees. Um, you know, I had some other folks on the, on the podcast before who were you know, doing similar stuff. But again, it's, it's such a unique right. space, um, you know, of how to work around the, the IOC. And, and I think you, met, you said that last time, at the end of the day, all is about influencing 100 people or whatever, you know, the exact number mm-hmm. is of IOC mm-hmm. members. Um, you know, it isn't about you have to convince the whole world. It's really a very small group of folks, um, and you need to hit them with Correct. the right thing. So that's that's all about it. It's all about how you spin those stories, how you create the story. So share that a bit with us. Happy to. Um, bidding became kind of a niche expertise of mine, kind of by accident. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, you talk to a lot of people in our world today, and they say, "Oh yeah, Terrence, the bidding guy." Actually, I'm a sponsorship guy, but marketing guy, but bidding is very high profile, Marcus. It is a, uh, it's a, it's, you're on a high wire with no net. There, there's no bronze. There's no silver. There's a two year time limit on it. You win or you lose. And that's what I adored right, about right, it. Right. That's because true. you, you it is, is all of marketing in one assignment. You have to create a brand, create a logo, create the tagline, create the reason why, create the story, sell it, yep. market it. And then somebody on one day makes the decision whether you've succeeded or failed. And I just love that passion about it. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I've worked on probably 11 bids. Uh, Still, I will humbly say, best record in the business. I I think five uh, Olympic bids I've been a part of that have won two World Cups, which were Russia and the United 2026. Mm -hmm. Uh, Helped get wrestling bid back in the games, golf's bid back in the games, right. a lot of other ancillary bids just recently worked on Doha's 2030 Asian games bid. Right. Um, so bidding to me seemed pretty obvious what was missing. When, when I got involved with George Herfler on the Beijing bid and the Vancouver bids early on, it was still a very functional technical process. You know, here, here are a trillion questions, fill out the questionnaire, put a bid book together, 
come back in, tell us how many airports you have, how many venues. It was a very, very data-driven deal. And um, to me, what was missing uh, was a story. What was missing was um, the romance. Right. The the reason why everybody was talking about the how, nobody was talking about the why. Right, right. So that's something I knew how to do, or or thought I did, and um, so that's how I approached it. Uh, you know, for example, Pyeongchang was an interesting one in that uh, they bid for 2010 and lost against Vancouver. I worked for Vancouver. Right. Uh, they bid, uh, you know, for 2014. And lost. And then for Sochi, I work for Sochi. Then they <laughs> were going to bet on 2018. Uh, and interestingly enough, what a, a lot of people don't understand, <laughs> what, what a lot of people didn't understand in bidding is to be successful, at least on the, the, the branding and messaging part, which is only part of successful bid. It's not everything. And right. I'm not the reason these bids won. I was just part of a great team. Yeah. And the part that I did was an integral part of it, but not the only part of it. But yeah. you do have to have a reason that resonates with these hundred people. Yeah. And it's very easy for you and I or anybody to sit down. Let's look at Pyeongchang, for example. Mm -hmm. In 2010 and 2018, the core message was the unification of the Korean Peninsula. Right. They went on and on and on and on about it. It was important to them. It yep. may be important geopolitically. Is it important to the IOC, to winter sport, to the IFs? The answer to that is unequivocally no. Right. So maybe a few members, but yeah, not the largest scheme, I guess, right? Yeah, okay. Maybe less than five. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so when they hired me for 18, I, I flew, I remember I just, I ride motorcycles uh, in the dirt. That's what I do. I don't play golf or tennis. I get on a motorcycle. I go, I go across Alaska without getting on pavement. And sometimes you fall out. I, I had broken something. I was on crutches and I went over to Seoul and met with them. It was in 2009 and uh, they were ready to hire me on the spot and blah, 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 blah. And they said, okay, so we're going to talk about reuniting the Korean peninsula. I said, no, you're not. They said, yes, we are. I said, look, you're not going to do that. You're going to lose again. And if you insist on it, then I'm not going to work for you. I'm going to go work for Munich and I assure you we'll beat you. So <laughs> they said, what do we want to talk about? And I said, well, I'll, I'll figure out what we want to talk about. But the, the long story short is, Kung Chung, for example, it's very easy for us on, to technically and uh, functionally look at the differences between Munich as a bidding city and Pyeongchang as a bidding city. Mm. And I will be brutally honest, and I've said it, I've written about it, Munich had the better bid by far. Munich was Agenda 2020 before Agenda 2020 existed. Munich had everything the IOC needed or could ever want. From the commercial side, winter sport in Europe had plateaued. It's hard for, it's hard for winter sport to grow more in Europe because it's pretty saturated, right. the climate change is changing everything, et cetera. So I sat down with everybody and I said, look, we don't have, I don't know if you've been to Pyeongchang, if you went to those games, but it's it's a village. Right. I said, we, do, we don't have the physical beauty of Munich. We don't have the Alps nearby. We don't have all of the venues they have. We don't have a passionate winter games population like they do. We don't have 
Thomas Bach in our bid like they do. Right. We don't have Katarina bid as a spokesperson like that. You know, we didn't have all of the things that you would look at on a piece of paper and say, there's every box check. Munich's right, going right, to win it. Right. But we need a different story. And that story eventually became a tagline we created called New Horizons, hmm. which was about taking winter sport to Asia for the first time since Sapporo in 72. Right. Um, it was a story about opportunity, about growing winter sport in a region where there were more young people under the age of 30 within a two-hour flight of Pyeongchang than there were in all of Europe. Right. So it became a story about that. And that was a story that so, it just resonated and it worked. Right. And once I realized that Pyeongchang, or excuse me, Munich was talking about you have to replenish the roots, you can't go to new markets all the time, I knew we were going to win because they started they started talking about our own positioning and taglines, yeah, similar so. with LA, for example, in 28. But anyway, that's um, yeah, the bidding that's piece is fascinating, changed dramatically. Um, you're never going to see beauty contests like that again. I think that's the right thing to do. I've written about it. I've written 100 memos to the IOC about it, going back a long ways. Right. That they need to look at bid cities as the first step in brand management, right? And not leave it up to a, a, bid, a beauty contest. So that's so that's what, I think just, just for the the uneducated here. Uh, what what is the process now? Just just a short version of you know what is it really now? The big difference to what you were sharing now, you know, in your in these years when you were doing it. As I understand it, and I still it's still in flux. As I understand it, the IOC has taken much greater control proactively and looking at cities and regions around the world as to where they would like their brand to be. This is what I told them. You need to say, where do we want the Olympic Games to be in four years, in eight years, in 12 years, in 16 years? Where can it best serve man? Look at the fundamental principles in the Olympic Charter. Your obligation is to place the Olympic Games at the service of mankind. That's what it says. So, so where generally? So where do we put it? And what's best for the world? What's best for the Olympic movement? Rather than just leaving it up to someone else to make that decision. Right. You know, I, I made the joke, and I wasn't too far off. I think some, at one point, McDonald's. It was it was a more rigorous process for McDonald's where they put a new franchise than it was sometimes for the IOC and where they put the Olympic Games. So I think now what's happened is the executive board or, or the games group under Christoph Duby, they have a, an ongoing dialogue process with many cities around the world. They tell them what's expected before they can actually put a bid in. They tell them what they're looking for, sustainability. I mean, all the stuff now that is table stakes for bidding on the games, legacy, sustainability, you know, those were kind of weird and new things 10 years ago. Now they're kind of expected. So the IOC, mm -hmm. I think going forward, will look for cities that best fit their long-term needs, both from a uh, emotional perspective and from a functional perspective. For example, as you know, they just chose Brisbane for 32. Right. They looked and they said, you know, what what area, what city have we been talking to for a few years makes the most sense financially, makes the most sense from a sustainability and legacy and so the executive board now is making that decision, and then they put it to the IOC members for a vote or for validation, and you and I both know that that's basically a rubber stamp on the decision that 
the executive board made. And I think that's a much better process. And I hate to say it, I just do than letting cities get up and do a 45 minute presentation. And you can do a lot in 45 minutes. I will tell you for the almighty 22 bid that I worked on against Beijing, we went from 26 votes before the 45 minutes to over 40 votes after the 45 minutes. Right. You know, my personal opinion is they should have gone with Almighty, uh, and I've heard from many people they don't disagree, but they didn't really know Kazakhstan very much in those days. Right. Anyway, there's, there's obviously the Winter Olympics you talk about, right? Um, we're talking to mm -hmm. 22. That's here. correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing. Now I remember you last time when we talked about it, you had this interesting story about the Senegalese kit uh, and the story about hope. Well, how did that fit into all this mm -hmm. again here? I can't remember. Well. Let's, we're rewinding back to the uh, to the brand work that we did as Meridian, but as oh, I told okay. you, there were twenty focus groups or twenty focus groups around the world that we did. And you've been in brand focus groups; they're quite different from product focus groups. Brand yeah, focus right, groups right. have a, 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 there's a lot of techniques that you use to get people to open up to get past the thin veneer uh, of of the Olympics. You know, typically, if you ask people, give me five words that come to your mind when you think about the Olympics, they're going to say flame, podium, athlete, stadium, or and those are fine, but they're very functional. They're not emotional. And brands, successful brands live in the emotional sphere, Absolutely. never in the functional sphere. Yep. So we were, the Senegal, uh, focus groups in Senegal, uh, there's a young man standing, you know, we're, we're behind glass partitions, listening through a translated translator doing French. My French is terrible. Non-existent as what I would say my French is. Uh, restaurant French. So... We're listening to it, and you know, one of the through various exercises, um, one of the, we ask people to 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 really get deeper into what the Olympics mean to them beyond those those visual functional things I just described. A young man stood up, and he's looking uh, through the glass, and I, he can't see us, but I could swear he could. It felt like he was his eyes were boring into us. Hmm. And uh, it was one of the most profound moments of my Olympic career. He said, uh, the Olympics to me are about hope. Mm, nice. uh, and hope was, not a, hope was not a word that registered at all in any of the unaided word association that we did. Mm. We ended up using hope as a specific platform. The ASEs changed it. We had four platforms that we came out of with that. And they've changed it to three, and they're probably changing them again as we speak, and that's all that's all good and well. But he said it's about hope, and that was an odd word to hear. We'd not heard that before. And he said, uh, look at me. I, uh, I'm an African. I'm black. And no one in the world cares. Hmm. And it got really quiet. And he said, but when I watch the Olympic Games and I see a person that looks like me from Africa hmm. standing next to – a white person from the United States or Britain or somewhere in Europe. And he said it just like this. He said, I know that for the next two minutes, we're equal. Right. And he put his hands up, pointed straight up at this guy. We're equal in the eyes of, of God. Right. He said, so I know I'm as good as, as they are. And that's what the Olympics mean to me. That's what it's about. And you talk about goosebumps. You talk about mm. just tears I, I'm still emotional talking about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was a very powerful, powerful reminder, frankly, of why these games in Tokyo, in spite of all the criticisms, are important. Yeah. So 
um, yeah, that yeah, there, there's a million stories. Be- beautiful story, yeah. Yeah, that's why I want. I, I remember it was uh, it was some, it was it was very emotional when we talked about it last time too, and and that's why I wanted to make sure we capture it here, as well. And uh, and it's a nice way to uh, sort of you know. And I want to jump a little bit. Uh, I know there is there were a couple other stops, uh, Taneo Sports Engine Shop. There, you know, in, if you want to, there's something specific you want to mention. But I, I really want to get to sort of you know T Burn Sports Group, which is your own group of now, of course, as a CEO there. Uh, and let's talk about this here in the next few minutes, um, because you are, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I think you, you're doing work now, or you did work or doing work on the Asian Games, right, uh, with the OCA uh, on Doha and the Saudi bits there, um, which again, is sort of obviously not everyone in the world even probably knows these games um, here in Asia. They are very large, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it depends on which part of the world you come from. For me, of course, this is uh, bread and butter stuff. Um so, you know, the huge games here, they're actually larger than the Olympics in terms of how many people go mm-hmm. there and, and how many sports are played. And so it's, these are massive tournaments or it's a massive event uh, in this region here. So talk, talk a bit about it, um, your experience with working with yeah. them and what you're doing now. Well, I, it was last uh, Thanksgiving um, and I got a call that um, – they were going to make a decision on the Asian games in about four weeks, the OCA mm-hmm. and uh, Doha kind of was the only bidder until Saudi Arabia put its head in the ring mm-hmm. uh, to about two months prior, you know, late last fall, mid fall. Right. And uh, the call really was about the Doha bid. And there was concern, some concern about its messaging positioning. Um, and uh, was it good enough? And did it say the right thing? And uh, I, the gentleman called me. I said, "Well, look, it's it's Thanksgiving, <laughs> it's COVID. You know, this is pre shots." Right. And uh, he said, and he said, "Look, I, you know, we really need your help, and we need you to do this." And uh, I said, "Well, okay, let me do a little research." It took me about a day, and I looked at what their positioning was based on press releases. That's all I could see. And so I wrote a twenty-five page deck, and I had a conference call with them, and members of the Royal family is in, in Qatar are always involved. And, uh, so I laid out why I thought they were 100% wrong in what they were trying to do and, uh, why it was time for Doha and Qatar in particular to turn the corner on the messaging of the past, which was, you know, we need the games, help us, you know, help us progress. I mean, Qatar doesn't need anybody to help them progress. They need to help other people progress. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so more, it was aggressive in a, the region for sure. Well, um, culturally, economically, etc. You, you, you can't be Qatar saying help us have a bright future. Asking somebody from no no offense to Mongolia, but asking somebody from Mongolia to help Qatar be more financially successful in the future, yeah. it made no sense. Correct. And I, it was a gutsy, aggressive approach. I took it at, at that point. You know, I figured, who cares? If they hire me, fine. If they don't, fine. I don't particularly want to go somewhere right now. But they bought it. They loved it. I've written about it. It's uh, I write for Sport Business a lot. So there's an article in there on thinking the global narrative for bidding. Mm. Um, and it was interesting because I think that's where we are going. I think that the bidding cities and nations of the future have to make a more compelling case, as I said, 
beyond the functional thing, which is we have X number of venues, we have X number of this done, we have this experience, that's kind of going to be expected from now on. You'll never see another Pyeongchang or Sochi type bid be successful. You just won't. Uh, the, the public opinion won't allow that. Uh, referendums won't allow that. Now, you know, then they went into, okay, now we're going to, we have all of that. So we're We're sustainable. We have a green legacy, uh, blah, 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 blah. We have consumer approval. Uh, we have public support. Okay. That's fine. Well, that's expected. What I think, you know, I might be wrong, but it's my personal opinion, um, based on one bid, which is the most recent one. I think that future bidding cities have to have a much larger cultural benefit, not only for themselves, but for the world. A bigger message, especially now coming out of COVID, especially now coming out of the the very, very uh, difficult political construct that's all over Western democracies, which, you know, half of every population is for X and half of every population is for Y, yep. and there's no meeting. So sport can and should finally live up to its stated vision, which mm -hmm. is unity, bringing the world together. So that's what I think future bidding uh, entities need to focus on beyond the basics of hosting the tournaments and or events. And I think you'll see it. Uh, it, it I don't know if that helped Doha in 2030. I know it didn't hurt it, but you know I had three weeks to change everything, speakers, messaging, speeches, uh, design, uh, everything. Um, and the OCA wisely, uh, politically, uh, gave Saudi 2034. Because uh, honestly, Saudi Arabia had to, to host an Asian Games. You're absolutely right. It's bigger than an Olympic Games. So much had to be done, mm. not just field to play, not just venues, but uh, just think about the tourist infrastructure that yep. doesn't exist yet in Saudi. Right. 10 years is nothing. 14 years, they'll be ready. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's it is really far out. I have to admit, I'm amazed at how far out they are uh, already picking these venues, and uh, it'd be great, amazing to see. Of course, we'll we'll all be watching Doha next year, uh, or Qatar as a whole for the World Cup, and uh, and I'm certain there will be plenty of learnings there uh, to take forward then into the games there. So interesting work. So well, this is sort of obviously during your COVID time, uh, you know, and and I want to you know sort of start moving into a little bit, you know, maybe a little bit else. What else is sort of is, is, is your agency doing or are you working on any particular projects before we want to talk a bit about maybe mm -hmm. in the cooling, cool down face here of our discussion about Tokyo uh, and, you know, what's just around the corner, of course. As I tell everybody, the this is the decade of global sports in North America. Those of us in my business who, have, you know, we are we're global sports gypsies. We, we've been around the world a trillion times for the last 30 years making a living. Right. I've only really worked worked uh, in the United States for a client for two of the past almost 30 years. And that was the LA 2028 bid where I was a consultant, but also served uh, as a seconded CMO for that bid. Mm -hmm. um, and I was back in the United States for for two solid years working. It's funny because a lot of people say, what was it like working back in America? I say this tongue in cheek, not pejoratively, but I say, well, now I know why people don't like us. <laughs> it was it was culture shock for me to kind of be back uh, with a group of Americans for two solid years doing something. It was it was quite different. Uh, but my <laughs> okay. point is, uh, you've got 
World Cup 26 is going to be yeah. in Canada, U.S., Mexico. You've yeah. got LA 28. Yeah. You possibly might have Salt Lake and or Vancouver in 2030, possibly. Right. So you've got a, a long runway of these super global events happening here in North America. Right. So I think me and I work with a young lady named Hey Young Cuddy, who's ex-IOC, uh, ex-GMR, ex-Visa. I work with Jan Katzoff, who you, you may or may not know, but Jan uh, ran GMR's uh, sports uh, basically consulting thing for eight or nine years. Before that, he had a company called Sportsmark, which was hospitality. Mm -hmm. It's just us three. Um, and the opportunity for us at a very high strategic level, I think, is unlimited. We're not an AOR. We don't do uh, T-shirt promotions. We don't do hospitality. Uh, we can do tactical if you need help. But, uh, for example, Alliance is a client of ours. Mm -hmm. We were hired long after they hired. They put out an RFP. They hired two other giant agencies. And they met with us, and we brought a, a level of uh, advisory services that they didn't have with the other two big agencies. Um, so, you know, they immediately hired us to help them, A, you know, do help them do their deal. I mean, I know how to sell an IOC deal. I know how to do it from uh, the brand side, too. So we've helped them oh, for so this was two before years. before Allianz had joined, is it? So you, They'd already joined. Oh, no, they no, joined. they oh, had right, already okay. signed up. Yeah. Yeah, they hired us uh, two years ago. Uh, okay. We met with them. I was in I was in Lausanne with Stockholm, 2026, and I said, "I'm here. Let's meet tomorrow. I know you're in town. I will tell you about the Olympic brand because I guarantee you, no one's told you about the Olympic brand." Spent two hours with them. Boom, they hired us. So right, right. you know that type of high level understanding of the brand, how it works, what consumers need from a sponsor, plus knowing how to do a deal. Uh, I guess my advice to anybody listening to this who's considering being a sponsor for any event is do not sign a BTA. <laughs> do not sign a basic terms agreement before you get professional help on how to negotiate an Olympic or a World Cup deal. Right. Once you sign the BTA, you're locked into basic terms and agreements and or conditions, and it's quite difficult to extricate incremental value in the long-form agreement. And I, I know my Olympic friends are going to hate if they listen to this, if anybody listens, is going to hate to hear me say that. But my message is to potential or current sponsors, get, get some help before get help. you sign the PTA. Right. <laughs> you can uh, save you a lot so of money it, you know, and I guess have, get you a lot of more benefits after yeah. at the end. Right? That's really the message. Well, right? some, you know, yeah, yeah some, honestly. And, and the agreements, you know, and I, I'm looking at a current top agreement. They're different than they were 20 years ago, but not demonstrably so. They're trying to be. And I think that's the other big change you're going to see in sponsorship, Marcus, is this one-size-fits-all agreement. It's just brands are demanding more now. They're wiser than they were. They've got more tools, digital tools, online tools, social media tools. They make these old agreements look like you're reading the Old Testament in a way. <laughs> you've, you've, they're, they're going to, I think, evolve to more bespoke agreements Right. You know, for example, why would a why would a bank just is an example? Why would a bank that's an Olympic sponsor need the exact rights and benefits that say Visa or Coca Cola has? Yeah, Olympic absolutely. Sponsor? That makes no sense. I well, they agree. well they don't. They yeah. don't need them. They're not valued equitably. But that's the way those agreements traditionally have been written. And I think you're going to see uh, as younger people come into the movement and displace old people like me, uh, even though I'm aware of this, uh, I, I do think you're going to see a demand from brands for more bespoke 
rights and benefits that make sense for what it is they're trying to do and achieve in their verticals. Mm. And that's a good thing. That's yeah. a very, very, very good thing because the top program is, is 40 years old. Yeah. Let's talk some numbers here again. I mean, you've had this beautiful chance to be involved in this so, so many years. And we talked about earlier, uh, you know, at Delta times when it was 40, 45 million, uh, you know, and I, again, I've read some of these things, of course, as well. And, and sometimes I don't remember whether it's one year term, what you read. Sometimes, of course, it could be multiple year terms. So the numbers always sound really big. Um, where are they now in comparison, let's say uh, mm -hmm. about 10x or where, where are we landing around now at the moment of these you know deals you've seen well i yeah i can i can share with you the the data that's reported uh publicly yeah, i can't absolutely. share with you yeah, yeah no, that's it, fine. It, but i mean a top agreement today the rack rate on a, on a four-year deal is 200 million dollars for the rights fees that includes one winter games one summer games rights in 205 or six national olympic committees it also now includes the Paralympic right. Games. Okay. That's that is new. That's a new twist in the top agreements. The IPC have folded their sponsorship uh, rights for global sponsors okay. into so the. It into was the, not part it, of it. Okay. Okay. Didn't realize that. Right. Okay. So that, that's a two hundred million dollar fee. Now, in the old days, you know, the old days, uh, you would get an, they had where they had these things called agencies of record where somebody would be your Olympic agency because you didn't have the skills inside of your company. Right. You would turn over the reins to pick a company and I won't use any names, but pick any big, uh, sponsorship company out there. They would traditionally say, Oh, you got to spend three to one minimum, you know, right. three to one ratio. Yeah. To um, three to one. cause that's yeah. a lot of money. It's a yeah. lot of money to be made at activation fees. So Correct. I never, that I thought one to one, you know, I was less than one to one at Delta because we didn't have any money. We were able to do fantastic things. So I, I err on the side of caution. It, it, and back when deals were forty-five million, that's a different construct than a deal being two hundred million. So if you sign up for two quads, that's eight hundred million. I mean, four hundred million. Excuse me. Yeah. So even if it's a one to one ratio on fees to activation, if you're spending four hundred million. That means 800 million. That means almost a billion dollars, yeah. Marcus. So boards, stakeholders, senior management look at that number and they go, well, hell, you know, a billion dollars. I know what I could do in R&D if I had that. I know what I could do in M&A. Hell, I know what I could do just putting that in treasury bills, you know, the, what the return is. Yeah. So there's much greater emphasis and scrutiny on sports marketing expenditures for these big, big events than there were. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just it, the numbers that we're at. So, for example, LA's deals, widely, uh, widely in the press. That's a, for a tier one deal. That's a four hundred million dollar deal. Now that's over eight years. Mm -hmm. Two hundred million is for NBC paid media. But, um, I, you know, LA has tried to be, um, creative and innovative by adding the NBC piece into it. As I understand it, that's, and I may be wrong, but that's for the tier one deals mostly uh, that, yeah, that, big, that yeah. see, yep. But I think at the tier twos probably be some level of commitment to NBC, um, et cetera. You know, I, here's, here's the thing about games in the United States that people forget because we wait so long between the periods in games in the U.S. Atlanta, for example, always gets a bad rap. Um, 
and I think undeservedly so. I think their marketing staff and program and what they did was groundbreaking. People don't know that the that the revenue that they raised uh, actually also that revenue paid for new venues, right. <laughs> and the IOC stop stop that practice after the Atlanta games. But it, when the games are held in the United States, a lot of people don't quite realize we do not have a Ministry of Sport. Right. We do not have a level position that is a minister of sport. Right. There is no federal funding that goes to LA 28 that went to Salt Lake 2002 or Atlanta 1996 or LA 1984, other than after 9-11, the federal government does help on security. It helps, frankly, our government helps on security for every Olympic Games, so do most governments. Right. So in the U.S., when you host an Olympic Games, like LA's stated uh, revenue targets around 2.5 billion. That's up from 1.9, which is what we had in the bid. Mm-hmm. And I've been around long enough to know that it's probably going to go above 2.5. That's a hell of a lot of money. Yep. Uh, that money, none of that's going to come from the government. That means that LA, like every U.S. games, is going to have to innovate and create new revenue opportunities and be much more aggressive on what they're selling and creative in what they're selling. And you know, having worked there for two years and the people that I know who are there now. And the people who are running it, they're going to be uh, maniacal in their creativity and their innovation. You're not hearing a lot from L.A. right now because they don't want to step on Tokyo. They don't want to step on Beijing. They don't want to step on Paris. They don't want to step on – you know, they got a while to wait yeah, yeah. before they, they're going to get super aggressive in the marketplace. But you know, that's what we sold when, when I worked for that bid and helped create that brand and the messaging around Follow the Sun. Follow the Sun was not an invitation to sit on the beach and drink a – Pina Colada, it was a absolute uh, challenge to the Olympic movement to wake up and look forward and get into the next century. Because the sun, following the sun takes you to the next day is the the clunky little metaphor. But the LA bid was completely about the next hundred years, uh, not the last hundred, the next hundred. And I think you're going to see that manifest in a lot of things that Kathy Carter and her team there and Casey are, are going to do. It's mm. They're going to be very, very innovative and, and creative. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, Casey is a great, great guy. And and, uh, and, I, and I've been following it. I love the, the logo. I think it's super creative what they've done with it and, and how the interpretation mm-hmm. of it and how it changes. Right? It's, it's obviously not one fixed logo. It really has you know, so many different facets yeah. to it. So uh, I have really, really cool stuff. And I have no doubt, uh, again, we'll set some – Grand branding new standards the way did the way the uh, the previous uh, LA Games did right so uh, what was it eighty four right um, so eighty four that's right uh, I have vivid memories of that still uh, which is always one of my fun favorite stories when I talk about it uh, watching it in my in my bedroom when I was uh, sixteen <laughs> now I want to repeat that part but uh, and I want to go, I want to also sort of come and and sort of slowly wrap it up but uh, one or two before we go to Tokyo actually there was another story I, I wanted to kind of dig a bit around and that was uh, Sochi right because there was all this stories yeah. and rumors about how much money was spent. And I remember last time you had some really interesting uh, you know, comments on that as well. Maybe just a short one on that. I'm happy to. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, uh, my Russian friends, I think, felt sorry for me because I did work really hard on Moscow 2012. Uh, but it, it definitely was uh, a bridge too far in many ways. Um, it's, uh, they gave me the opportunity to uh, to do Sochi and <clears throat> I um, I actually had an opportunity to work for a lot of places, obviously, in, in those days, any of those bidding cities. 
uh, we were quickly building a reputation around bidding expertise, um, deserved or not. That's that's what we were getting. And um, so I went down to Sochi and uh, met the mayor, um, who uh, was one of the first. They had a succession of mayors. Long story short, uh, we we sat down that day with he and his team and figured out where to put the first ever winter Olympic park I had a guy with me named Bob styles. Who's went to work for Sochi. Once it became an organizing committee and Bob has passed on sadly in 2009, but Bob was, uh, the technical guy on the bid and, um, very brilliant guy and, uh, understood the mechanics of the games and, and the technical part of venues, et cetera, which I do not. Um, but the long story short about the Sochi, the bid was several funny stories about it. Uh, I was flying from Melbourne, Australia to London for something. I can't even remember what it was for. And uh, I stopped in Dubai and I had a voicemail from a colleague who said, I'm here in Ireland at the EOC meeting and uh, IMG is about to take your business away from you for Sochi. (laughs) Uh, And this is in uh, November. And I had been working with a team on the Sochi bid since August of 05. We were the bid committee. There was no bid committee. It was me and about five consultants that I'd hired out of my pocket. I was about three or 400 grand into it. Uh, And I, you know, I trusted my Russian friends because they had never let me down before. And they never have, by the way, let me down. Um, that, that it was going to happen, hang in there, but we had to write in those days a mini bid book and then a big bid book. We had written the mini bid book. We had everything done. We had it designed. We had all the venues. We had budgets, et cetera. And uh, <laughs> there's a guy named Dmitry Chernyshenko. Uh, I'm trying to tell the story in, in the right way. Dima came in to be the new head of the Sochi bid. And, uh, and like most people new to the Olympics, you, you tend to hire, uh, big names in the business. He didn't know who we were, but he knew who IMG was. And our friends at IMG were working in pretty hard at that meeting in, in Ireland, Dublin. And, uh, I was told you're about to get whacked. And I, I did get a call from Dima and he said, I'm Dima and Dimitri and Mr. Burns. I understand you have my bid. I'd like it Monday morning on my desk. And I said, uh, I really don't know who you are. Uh, but I do have a bid and right now it's my bid. (laughs) It's not your bid. And, uh, if, if you think you can replicate everything we've done in five months in the next eight weeks, what you need to do to turn into the IOC with a new partner, have at it. Uh, because what I have is what I've put together in our team and I've paid for it. And if you want it, Here's the terms and conditions, and uh, he was super cool about it, and he agreed, and uh, they maintained us through the whole end of it. So it, it was a very interesting, quirky bid. Um, it was obvious that the Russian government was behind this bid as opposed to the Moscow bid. It was interesting because there was a lot of starts and finishes. I remember when we did the bid book, uh, the real bid book, you know, where you had to print, as you remember, a thousand of these volumes that were quite expensive send them all over the world. Uh, believe it or not, Sochi didn't have any money to pay the, the printer that we used in the U.S., the down payment. So I loaned the bid, the money wow. to get the bid books printed. So, you know, it's easy to say 
Putin and the government was behind it all the way. They weren't really, and they were, but they didn't really understand what they needed to do until the very end. But we're talking about that that budget, the fifty billion dollar figure right. that's yeah. often banded about. Well, that doesn't surprise me. It may even be more than fifty because they built a city to host the Olympic Games. Right. Uh, I can tell you unequivocally that. Me and Bob Stiles and a couple of other people spent about two weeks putting together what we thought would be the everything, what they needed to do to build, to host the games. It was about $12 billion U.S. dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, it was called the Federal Target for the Promotion of the Sochi Region. It went into law, Russian law, $12 billion. That was a non-OCOG budget. Mm-hmm. The organizing committee budget is what all winter games are, two and a half billion, right. roughly, two, two and a half billion. And that's what it costs. That's what right. that's what it costs. And you know, that money is recouped through sponsorship and and right. broadcast right. and marketing, et cetera. So the twelve billion was what it would cost to build these venues, some hotels, et cetera. Somebody in the Russian government decided we're not gonna do that. We're going to build the whole region. Mm. And that's what they did. Right. And unfortunately, Marcus, that number 50 got repeated again and again and again and again in the consumer's mind, the media's mind. That became the number that it cost to host a, a Winter Games, which was bullshit, but uh, nobody ever pushed back on it in the right way. So that started this whole thing about referendums, concerns around cost, the Olympic Games, the legacy. Those are good questions. Those are the right questions to answer. Mm. But it was predicated on an erroneous assumption that the IOC demanded Russia spend $50 billion, which is not only bu- right. bullshit, it's ludicrous. Right. They didn't. Well, well, it's good to hear. I think it's a good message, and, and that's why I wanted to sort of touch on a little bit. Of, and, and I had actually when we were talking about sponsorship earlier, it was one other question I forgot. Um, so obviously the – I think it was maybe Beijing at least what I recall was one of the first time I remember – that uh, the IOC literally generated more revenue than the the IOC was their top program, you know, or at least in the similar ballpark. Um, and since then, I'm sure uh, it's probably been like that way. Where is it right now? If you compare the uh, an IOC pack, they say the the, the top package versus the the low cost package, um, you know, where are they? Are they similar, or it really depends heavily on which part of the world the events are? The tier one deals are similar. Right. For example, okay. if you can make the guess that if if an LA eight year deal is four hundred million, you can make the guess that a four year deal is two hundred million for a tier one. That's the same rack rate as a as a global sponsorship. Yeah, is, I would say that? this about two hundred. Yeah. So yeah. I'd say this about <laughs> sponsorships are funny things, and you really need to look at the economic environment, the political environment of the host country. Mm. Uh, China overperformed magnificently on, maybe not magnificently the way Tokyo has, but overperformed on local sponsorships for a lot of reasons. But back in those days, they weren't market-driven reasons. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so they are national-driven reasons, and I would, I would say this with the greatest respect to our friends in Tokyo 2020, who raised three billion dollars three billion dollars for local sponsors to participate in those games there's not enough and those people only have rights in japan right right? and only for four years there's not enough people and not enough time to recoup that from a traditional roi 
So in a lot of countries, uh, the sponsorship revenue gets tied up into national prestige. Uh, you know, Dentsu has been a huge component of, of yeah. well, nation projecting. Um, so you have you have market driven deals and you have other type of incentive driven deals, which tend to be nationalistic and or projecting prestige, saving face, blah, blah, blah. And you have to differentiate between the two. And I think the Olympic movement sometimes confuses those two things. And I think L.A. will be a great test to see if these super high local levels that we've seen come out of places like China and Japan, for example, will they hold up in a very dynamic, super competitive market like the United States? Mm. So that remains to be seen. I think it'll be somewhere in the middle. I think it'll be somewhere in the middle. But market, you know, market forces here in the U.S. will drive the value of those L.A. deals because just in L.A. alone, there's like over 10 college programs that have sponsorships. There, there are, How many pro teams are in L.A.? Think about it. Uh, You're competing a, against yeah, all different. of those things. So the buyers are very, very astute. They've got a lot of things to choose from. Um, you're not selling. And, and the U.S. is quite different, I'm sorry, than Japan or China where it, it takes on national importance. The games in the United States, because the way the U.S. is, uh, and I'm not, again, not being pejorative, but the fact that the games are in L.A. probably had, didn't have a lot of relevance to people in Tampa hmm. or New Hampshire, or it, it just doesn't. It's not, it's not a national uh, point of pride and emphasis like it is in, in smaller markets and or new and emerging markets. Yeah. Not no. being pejorative, that's just the reality of that's the reality of how business works. Absolutely. The Olympic business. No, no, I, I would totally agree. So let, I was spent just maybe another five couple of minutes here on, on uh, Tokyo. Right? We're just around the corner. By the time the podcast drop, we'll probably be right in the middle of it. Uh, your thoughts, your expectations, your concerns, um, and your hope for it. Uh, tell us. My concerns are, are the same as everyone else. I mean, the pandemic is just math. And if you do the math and you're objective about it, especially with the variants and, and lower vaccine rates, right. cases rise wherever yep. you are. Yep. And there are there's a lot of people saying that the IOC and or is forcing these games upon Japan. That's not the case. Uh, there are a lot of people saying that these games are going ahead irrespective of health concerns simply because of money. I, that's not the case. The Olympic Games have been around since they're in their third millennium, Marcus. Yep. Third millennium. You don't make decisions purely based on money and stick around that long. And I know I sound like a believer and I know a cynic would love to debate me and I have to debate that all the time. Yeah. I worked in Japan for the Nagano games. It was there quite a while and I dealt closely with the Japanese people to deliver an Olympic game. So maybe I have a, a unique perspective. I have great faith in them. I think they're indomitable. I, I think they persevere through everything. I think their country is like South Korea, a miracle. You look at what they've achieved in a short amount of time. Yeah. They'll deal with it. It's not perfect. I feel sad for them and disappointed for them that these games, uh, which means so much to them as a nation and especially in the construct of, as you know, Asian face, and it means a lot to Japan. And I think in many ways, I had this debate, not the debate, I had this discussion with a reporter actually yesterday from New York Times who asked me, you know, some of the brands in Japan, the Japanese brands are worried about the brand backlash on themselves. Mm-hmm. 
And I said, the people who are saying that don't understand uh, the value, the proposition of sponsorship or Olympic sponsorship. My personal opinion is these companies who paid $3 billion and stuck it out and didn't cut and run and stood there with the people of Japan to do these games as best that they can do it under terrible circumstances, I think they're going to be rewarded long term. I think people are going to remember who their friends are. They're going to remember who supported them. They're going to remember who was there at the most difficult time, one of the most difficult times for their nation. And those brands are going to see benefits and brand loyalty and awareness and and feel-good issues Mm. far past the end of these games. And I think in many ways, perversely, more so than they had been normal games. That's what consumers around the world tell us. If you will show us why you love the Olympic movement as much as we do, we will buy your stuff forever. Right. And that's a powerful thing. That, that is a powerful thing. So, right. you know, there's a lot being said about, uh, you know, I, I think it, at some point there was, there was messaging about these games being a demonstrable stake in the ground about our victory over COVID. Well, you know, I, I would be cautious about any, anything yep. <laughs> like that. But I do think that they do and they can showcase humanity's indomitable belief in hope yep. and the yep. future. And that's that's what I think will come out of these games. I pray it will. And uh, my, it's the first games I haven't been to in 30 years, I guess. So I'll be watching them with everybody else from home and yeah. praying for their success. And it's for the athletes at the end of the day. So yeah, totally, I agree. And 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 we, it's a nice way to finish off here. We we use the word hope again, which we obviously heard earlier the story. Um, and mm-hmm. I think it is. Um, you know, I'm hopeful too. Uh, a that it all goes well. Um, and be that, you know, during, at least during the games, um, the world has a chance to, you know, just relax and, and enjoy and, 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 you know, take in what, what the games are all about, uh, that there will be issues on the ground, um, that, uh, COVID isn't going away right now and, and continues to, you know, show its ugly face around the world. We all have to, you know, we're living with it and, and we're all dealing with it. Uh, but, uh, I'm, I'm glad to see it is going ahead and, yeah, and I have no doubt uh, we both know Japan well. I had an officer for almost 10 years, and yeah. uh, you know we know how, how not just smart, but also uh, how when it comes to hygiene and all this stuff. There isn't a place in the world which can do that better than, than the Japanese, so uh, they will figure it out, and, and I have no doubt the, the athletes will be safe, and hopefully the country will be safe afterwards. So, um Terrence, this was fun. I, I really enjoyed the the uh, the journey through all the the decades here of of your career, as well as of course all the great stories around the different Olympics. You know, all the way there from you know 1996 uh, Atlanta to where we are now here, 2021, and the Hard to believe. celebrating the 2020 Olympics. Funny enough, you know that doesn't happen that often either. So um, no, I wish you, yeah, I wish you all the best here and and enjoy the games. And I'm sure we'll talk again some. So- sooner you know when you when we all can travel again and maybe we'll see you there in in, uh, in these events in the middle east we talked about earlier i hope so and thank you so much for for the time and the opportunity and uh, good luck to you and all your endeavors thank you thank you Terrence. enjoyed it cheers bye-bye the sports entrepreneurs by marcus lure podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited.
All rights reserved.